Welcome to the Psych Central Show, where each episode presents an in-depth look at issues from the field of psychology and mental health, with host Gabe Howard and co-host Vincent M. Wales. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Psych Central Show podcast. My name is Gabe Howard, and with me, as always, is Vincent M. Wales. And we'd like to remind you that you can get one week of free, convenient, affordable, private, online counseling anytime, anywhere, by visiting the fine folks over at betterhelp.com slash psychcentral. Please welcome to the show, Rosina Bakari. She's a poet, a spoken word artist, and a motivational speaker. Welcome. Thank you. Yes, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. Rosina, uh, we are having you on the show to talk about, specifically, the survivors of incest and other unpleasant things like that. The reason for this, I, I understand, is because so many times when we talk about sexual abuse, we, we don't really get into the nuances about incest. It's just a, a more general. That's correct. A uh, little known fact is that of the adult survivors of childhood sexual abuse, 80% of us are actually incest survivors. That's a high number. Yes. Had no idea. Yep. That is a very high number. Why do you think that people aren't more open about their past traumas? Because it is incest, uh, meaning, of course, siblings, but also adoption, people who live in a family, you know, live in boyfriends, that sort of stuff. Uh, because it's family related, we have grown into this concept that family is more important than individual even in individual, so-called individualistic cultures, we still maintain that concept that family is more important than individuals. That, that is something I've noticed too. And I, and I honestly say, I find it so strange. You know, we often hear about, you know, the nuclear family is the, is the center. Of, no, the individual, one person right. is the center of society. So yeah, it never made any sense to me. Yeah. So we do a lot protect the family, especially because the ages for incest really do start very young. And so you don't get a chance to grow up, have this full adult mind with, with full functioning. So you actually grow into an awareness of dysfunction. You often don't have that as a child when these things begin to take place. So that's a, just from a developmental aspect, uh, the silence, the propensity to be silent already exists because of when it starts. It would seem to me like one would go with the other. I mean, the, the, the trauma of the experience, I, I think most people understand. But I, I think what maybe many people miss is that you're also sort of trained to be silent, like you, like you said. They're, don't talk about this. This is wrong. And it's your fault anyways. Is that, is that very commonplace? I mean, is that like a secondary? I want to call it a secondary trauma. It's like you're, you're told that what is happening to you is acceptable. And it's so acceptable that you no longer have the power to discuss what's happening in your own life. Exactly. That is very common for the survivors that I work with. That is our biggest complaint, if you will, is the silencing. Because the past is the past. It's true. And people certainly remind us of that. But the silence and the effects of the silence is very, very present. And that's what people don't get. When you're experiencing all this dysfunction in adulthood, it's not because you're still traumatized by the physical events. That's part of it. It's really because you're traumatized by the silence that is present every day of your adult life. 
we're taught not to challenge authority figures. And in most cases, that's what they're experiencing, right? Absolutely. Yes. You have a very impressive website called Talking Trees, and this is for survivors. And one of the things that you talk about on there is the concept of living openly. Can you talk about that for a minute? I use the phrase that you can heal or you can hide. You, you have to choose. If you're healing, then you no longer are satisfied with hiding. If you're hiding, it's really, really, really difficult. I won't say impossible, but you're covering a different space than, than what you need to heal. When I actually created Talking Trees, when I went from hiding to healing, and it was so difficult to find people to process information with coming out of silence that I started talking trees because I thought, okay, well, there's really at this time 45 million survivors. Where are they and why aren't we talking to each other? And so you're providing a forum for them to do so. I write daily on the Facebook page and that's Talking Trees, Adult Survivors of CSA on Facebook. I write daily gems, just gems about healing, gems to affirm the experience, gems to challenge ourselves on the healing journey, that people have something to respond to and know that they can engage in conversation every single day. Consistency is the most important aspect. If you've been silent for 30 years, then you need consistency in breaking that silence because it's so easy to go back. I'm a person who lives with bipolar disorder and I, I work with other people who live with mental illness. And when I was first diagnosed, I was very open about it because I, I didn't know there was any reason not to be. And within a, a, a pretty short period of time, I, I lost my job and uh, friends pulled away and people didn't want me around their children. And there was lots of whispers and, and all of the things that you would probably expect to happen to somebody who is now, you know, publicly living with a severe and persistent mental illness. Uh, so then I went back in the proverbial closet and what I found was is while the stigma and discrimination against me for living with bipolar disorder was very traumatic and I didn't like it at all, it was worse when I was quiet about it because I could at least assume that the other people were just misinformed or even jerks. But when I was doing it to myself, right. when I was afraid to speak up, I was sending myself this subtle message that I don't think I'm good enough. Is this the same in your community? I imagine it is. Yes, I think you're, you're right on track there. When you're silent, there, you can't even take care of yourself because there are things that happen and you can't respond to them because you live in silence. Okay, if you allow me to give you an example, one survivor that I've been working with for years uh, is of course, it's all about finding your voice and being more and more open. One of the things that she talks about is no longer being being triggered and doing nothing about it. So, so somehow, ants is part of her her sexual abuse uh, in, in certain in some situation. Well, it used to be that she'd be at the park every summer and have these triggers for ants and could literally do nothing because she was living in silence. She can't tell someone why she's freaking out over ants. Now she does. She just simply say, hey, I'm an adult survivor. I have ants are a trigger. And she walks away. She doesn't have to go into detail, blah, blah, blah. But, but she's, because she's not afraid to say, I have this horrible experience that puts me in a situation where this creates great anxiety for me. She can just simply state it and leave and take care of herself. And it's very empowering. You're, you're taking some of that power back. 
and advocating for yourself. Exactly. Rosina, I think uh, a lot of people out in the general public have certain misconceptions about survivors of child sexual abuse. Would you like to address any of those? Absolutely. There is certainly uh, some misperceptions, and a lot of that come from the fact that we are relatively silent and without voice. We have been. And so when there's not a speaker, then how do you obtain information? When I started living openly and created Talking Trees, I had to go to research journals to find any information, any relevant information. Well, easy for me to do because I have a doctorate degree. And so what does that leave for the other survivors? So rightfully so, there is a lot of misperception. Unfortunately, the misperceptions that are out there uh, lean toward grace, way more grace than should be toward violators and people who enable violators. So that's the danger of having all these myths out there myths about even just the definition of what incest is, the fact that it includes people by adoption, people who live in a house, people who are related, for example, third cousins or or fourth cousins. Like I have heard survivors say, well, it's not incest because, or I wasn't abused because, and then go on to give some mythical answer about why they're not a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. So even from the definition to the effects. There definitely are myths out there. I really like what you said there about how the, the silence really protects the violators, the perpetrators. It, it, it doesn't empower the victims. It doesn't help the victims. And it certainly doesn't do anything for prevention. Do you think that this is part of the reason that we ask people not to talk about it, both because it makes people uncomfortable and because... The violators would have like better PR people. I mean, because this is really what violators teach people. Be quiet about it because this creates the space that I need to violate. Um, and then society unwittingly goes along with it because they're uncomfortable. Yes, absolutely. And if people could really get that your discomfort as an adult human being, your discomfort should not override the protection of children in essence. And that's what's happening. The more we decide collectively as a society in the world that we're just not going to talk about the things that make us uncomfortable, the bigger those things are. They're horrible things and we have to talk about them. Well, and that's, I, I really, really like what you said there. I mean, you've just basically said, we're too uncomfortable to talk about it, so we don't want to, but we're completely ignoring the traumatic experience, it's, it's too uncomfortable to think about, but somebody went through it and, and we're not giving that person the care that they need and we're sending them a message that we're not supporting them. And I, I think that that makes it more difficult for people to get the help that they need. And that's, that's the purpose of your educational programs, your website. You truly believe in the power of, of sharing and storytelling and, I believe you call it owning your own story or telling your own story. Yeah, owning it. Absolutely. Yeah, speak to that a little bit because that's, this comes up a lot in mental health circles as well. This idea that being quiet about our illness is, is worse than being public about it and having other people stigmatize us because when other people stigmatize us, well, maybe they're misinformed or uneducated, but when we're quiet about it, it's us 
abusing ourselves. And well, that's just no good. The thing about uh, being quiet as an adult survivor of childhood sexual abuse and incest, though, is that the quietness is all external. Inside your head, <laughs> there's lots and lots of noise. So when you're not, when you're not creating and navigating and owning your own experiences so that you know how to have discourse or conversations around them, you're stuck with the voices in your head. And they are so unkind, right? If you're not talking about it, there's no one to challenge those voices in your head. So the voices in your head are responding to the abuse and not in a good way with you as the host, right? So there's nothing challenging those voices in your head. So yeah, you end up being quite unkind to, your, to yourself when you don't let in real external conversations that can help you process all those ugly things that, that come up for you. Of course, you just can't get any new information. Whatever you thought during the time of the abuse is probably what you're still thinking now because there's been nothing to you know, push, push that out. Exactly. So then we're living with the uh, violator's narrative and not the survivor's narrative. And that's the danger of that. Well said. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com. Secure, convenient, and affordable online counseling. All counselors are licensed, accredited professionals. Anything you share is confidential. Schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist whenever you feel it's needed. A month of online therapy often costs less than a single traditional face-to-face -face session. Go to BetterHelp.com forward slash Psych Central and experience seven days of free therapy to see if online counseling is right for you. BetterHelp.com forward slash Psych Central. Let's talk a little bit more about the healing process in here. One of the things that we often talk about in that process is forgiveness. What's your opinion on that? Healing is a lifelong journey. Forgiveness, I'll say this tongue in cheek, but I'm, I'm really sort of serious. I think forgiveness is some word that people made up to continue the behaviors that they want, want, want to do. Right. So we speak of this term forgiveness. I'm pretty sure forgiveness was a word made up by violators, not survivors, a concept made up by by people who hurt, not by people who heal. But forgiveness is a real thing. Forgiveness should arrive on the healing journey. If it arrives out of fear, if it arrives out of dysfunction, if it arrives out of commitment to someone other than yourself, then that's not really forgiveness. That's more denial. I believe that forgiveness is only forgiveness if it can arise, not something you do, but if it can arise out of a place of healing. Moving on with your life, being a survivor, how do you approach relationships and, and sexual relationships in a healthy way? Uh, cautiously. <laughs> <laughs> Good advice for anyone. Uh, yeah, and, and I, we do imagine that it's, it's different for everyone, of course. I imagine that there's a lot of inner conflict in in survivors. Do you have any advice or recommendations for how to broach that? I, I absolutely do. There are four rules of sexual consent that are not yet um, well-known. They should be. It's terrible. When we all play by the same rules of sexual consent, sex becomes so much more pleasurable and so easy. So, Rosina, what are these four rules of consent? So the first rule is, 
is pretty simple. And this is a rule that has been broken for most incest survivors. And that is that a person must be able to offer consent. So meaning that in most states, they have to be at least 14 years of age. In some states, it's 16. But a child under the age of 14 cannot offer consent. So uh, a, a person who is under the influence of drugs and alcohol to the point that they don't have their reasonable faculties or a person who is uh, developmentally delayed. So you have to be able to offer consent. So that's rule number one. So the second rule is the rule that Hollywood breaks all the time. And this is a big rule we haven't figured out yet. Uh, and that is that consent takes place early. Consent is not about penetration. Consent is about bodily autonomy, understanding that everybody has a right to govern their own body. And so unlike what Hollywood would have us believe, you shouldn't just grab somebody by the hair and kiss them, right? Like that's not okay. Because once you've done that, then you put someone, uh, what, I, what I like to say is you've taken away people's out. Like if you're waiting until someone stops you from, from taking your clothes off, then you've, you've taken away people's out. So we start consent early so people can say no early. Like people should have a, a lot of time to say no. People should be able to say no frequently, not just once. And so if you've waited until the, until the end ultimate act to ask for consent, then you've already broken some laws, right? The third one is that consent has to be maintained throughout, right? Because again, we want frequent times for people to be able to opt out. And the fourth one is just about asking for birth control or protection from unwanted pregnancy and or disease. So if you haven't done that, then, I, then it makes me question, then did you ask for consent? Like if you were going so fast that no one needed to talk about those things, then did you give those many opportunities for people to opt out of the situation? Rosina, were, were those laws original to you? By the way. You know, interestingly, I thought they were, and um, but I've seen them many places, and I guess because they just make sense. So they do make sense, <laughs> right? And so, if you look, if you look almost anywhere at the rules of consent, you'll see maybe some slight variations in language. Sometimes people don't include the law, or at least originally people weren't talking about the laws of un uh, of protection against unwanted pregnancy and disease. But again, this is a the law that frequently has been broken for adult survivors, like frequently. Like unwanted pregnancy is very common for adult survivors. So it's really critical for us. The trouble with survivors is like all of our relationships, we haven't, it's, been, it's complicated sometimes to know what is healthy, right? When, so for so many of us, your first introduction to sexuality was based in deep dysfunction like deep dysfunction. Like who wants to say, well, the first time that I had this sexual experience, it was my father or my brother or my uncle or my grandfather. Like when that's the beginning of your sexual experience, it's, it's, it's pretty, it remains traumatic, right? Then how do you figure out what quality relationships really are and, and where you fit intimacy into those? So to me, if you understand the four rules of sexual consent, then everybody is safe, period. Like it's not up to that person to make you safe. If you play by the rules, then everybody is safe. And so if you start with the safety net of having some rules as opposed to trying to trust your judgment or somebody else's judgment, then I think you grow into making better judgments about those types of relationships. 
So don't leave it up. I say don't leave, don't leave it up to your feelings or intuition that we always like to talk about because those are only as good as you are healthy. So if you have a lot of dysfunction going on up there or misperception, then using your intuition eh, may not get you the space that you want. That makes perfect sense, actually. It, it really, really does. The, I really liked what you said about your intuition is only as good as you are healthy. Our intuition changes. I, I am much more right. intuitive to people's feelings at 40 than I certainly was at 20. Mm -hmm. Um, right. I, in some areas I'm more selfish. I am more selfish with my time, but I'm less selfish with understanding. And that's just age related. We're not dealing with a trauma response in, in any of these right. conversations. One of the things that we want to talk about, as you pointed out, you know, incest deals with families and it deals with people that are in your life or people that people that you care about are in their lives. And this makes it that much more complicated is it possible to have your abusers still in your life and be mentally healthy? Can, can you speak on that a little bit? Because I, I imagine that this gets very, very complicated. It is really complicated. I would say anything is possible. It's all about what healing you have done. So we use the words no contact. The survivor understands that contact with the abuser or people who support the abuser, that having contact with them greatly becomes an obstacle on a healing journey. So we do something consciously to avoid contact. That helps a lot. That is what people who thrive generally do. That being said, no contact looks very, very different. So sometimes survivors, for example, go no contact, meaning they have no physical contact but they still have relationships with people. They talk on the phone, they may send gifts or whatever. It depends. But generally speaking, for people who thrive, the less contact we have with family, the healthier we become. But that's a process. I was almost 45 years old when I started going no contact. I had a husband of many years, children. I had all these things. No contact looks very different at that stage of your life than it does trying to go no contact in your 20s. Like that's very different. And so that's when people from a developmental standpoint, again, may hang on a little longer. Plus you still have this perception that life is fair and jest and things are going to work out. <laughs> so. you, you are right. <laughs> True right. words so have never been spoken on this show. <laughs> Right, you know, so you so how that looks is so individualized, so individualized. It's like the forgiveness thing. No one can tell you or should ever tell you if and when you should forgive. No one can tell you that. Healing is a process. Do I let go of my family and pick up addiction? Like every survivor has to balance all of this stuff for themselves. And it's really quite the balancing act. Imagine so. Rosina, you have a book out called Too Much Love Is Not Enough. Would you please tell us about it? Yes. So uh, I've been working with adult survivors for since 2010. And I've been really careful about acting as a participant in there as we create these uh, rules, kind of a language around speaking. And But I've been 
doing so sort of as a mentor. And so at this junction in my life, it was time for me to be more transparent uh, with what my experiences have been. So we could at least say, hey, we've been talking for eight years and this is all the stuff that we've been talking about. And this is how it looks in one person's life. And I did that as an invitation to invite survivors on this healing journey to say, I know, like, I'm not just writing this stuff. Like, this is how, it, this is how all of these concepts have unfolded for me. And so I really wanted to just, it, for it to be literally an invitation for people to get on a healing journey and say, yep, it's gonna, it's gonna hurt. It's, there's a lot of discomfort in it. And so it's about my, my 40 year journey out of silence. Like the book is about the silence. I didn't even get to the healing in the book. It's about the silence and how, and, and how intentional our healing has to be if we want to heal. Well, thank you so very much. I imagine that it's available on uh, Amazon and your finer retailers yes. nationwide and online. And one more time, what's your website and, and who should visit it? Who is it designed for? The website is designed for every survivor, for sure. And definitely for people who want to be allies to survivors. There's a lot of information there. There's a frequently asked questions section. Uh, there, uh, there's some work by other survivors there. There are some video resources. So it's really for people who care about creating safe space in the world for adult survivors. And the website is talkingtreessurvivors.com. Plural trees and plural survivors. Talkingtreessurvivors.com. Of course. And as always, we put all of this in the show notes so you don't have to rely on your memory because no doubt you are listening to this podcast while on the treadmill, <laughs> going at full speed, <laughs> right. uh, staying as healthy as humanly possible. Thank you so much for this this enlightening and open and candid conversation about a subject that you're right, society would much rather sweep under the rug than address. And I imagine that you have done a lot of good here for a lot of people. So thank you for your work and yes, please continue. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It was me. great having you. Thank you. All right, everybody, thank you for tuning in and we will see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Psych Central Show. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you found this podcast. We encourage you to share our show on social media and with friends and family. Previous episodes can be found at psychcentral.com show. Psychcentral.com is the internet's oldest and largest independent mental health website. Psych Central is overseen by Dr. John Grohall, a mental health expert and one of the pioneering leaders in online mental health. Our host, Gabe Howard, is an award-winning writer and speaker who travels nationally. You can find more information on Gabe at GabeHoward.com. Our co-host, Vincent M. Wales, is a trained suicide prevention crisis counselor and author of several award-winning speculative fiction novels. You can learn more about Vincent at VincentMWales.com. If you have feedback about the show, please email TalkBack at PsychCentral.com. There are few words more misunderstood and misused than OCD. Imagine having unwanted thoughts stuck in your head all day, no matter how hard you try to make them go away, and then having to pretend that everything is okay despite having to feel crippled inside. That's OCD. 
One in 40 people suffer from it globally, but there's hope. If you have OCD and need help, you can get better with specialized treatment. NoCD offers effective, affordable, and convenient treatment for OCD and is covered by many major insurance plans. Go to NoCD.com to learn more. That's NoCD.com.